0: and significant thing. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you can use the Black Pew Bible, which should be somewhere in front of you, and Psalm 2 is on page 448. If you have a different Bible and you don't know where Psalms happen to be, go ahead and flip to about 30% of the way into your Bible and you're Pretty good chances are of you landing there. So, somewhere in the Psalms. And then flip to Psalm 2. It used to be that movie sequels were rare. You didn't get a movie sequel unless the first movie did really well. Well enough that it warranted all the extra time and budget and effort into making a second movie to follow it. Well, these days we don't really see that happen anymore. You don't get to produce a movie unless you come with like a three-movie franchise ready to go. But there's a pattern that still follows movie sequels, even today. So you have the first movie, and the first movie generally takes a character or a couple characters and develops a story around them, has a problem, and that problem is pretty localized. And then at the end of the movie, the problem is worked out, and then you have to find a reason to bring everybody back. And so the second movie, the sequel, usually takes those same characters and expands it out. Maybe adds a couple more characters. Maybe the setting is a little bit bigger, a little broader. Maybe the problem is suddenly worldwide. Maybe the villain is a bigger villain. This is so predictable. It's, it's so cliche. We see this all throughout movie sequels. A good example, this is the, Pixel, sorry, the, the Pixar movie Toy Story. If you've seen Toy Story... The characters are a bunch of toys, and most of the plot takes place in this one kid's bedroom. Now Toy Story 2, the camera zooms back, and suddenly there's more toys, and the toys are all over the city. There's car chases, and there's apartments, and there's toy stores. It's a worldwide scope, in a sense, for these toys. Well, this morning's text actually functions in a very similar way. Recall last week when our brother Grant came up and preached Psalm 1, that we saw the psalm dealing with two groups of people, the righteous and the wicked. And we saw that these two groups were compared both in life and in the very different eternal destinies that awaited them. Well, this morning we have the same kind of comparison, but just like with a movie, the camera is pulled way back and we get it on a global scale. We see now nations and rulers and kings becoming involved, not just individuals. In fact, this shift from the micro-focus of the individual to the world macro-focus is probably by design. Many scholars who read Psalm 1 and 2 think that originally these were one psalm. Remember that the chapter numbers and the verses that are in there in our Bibles, those came way later, and while they're helpful, they're not inspired. Now whether that's true or not, maybe these were two separate psalms, we need to begin our study of this morning's text with this wide-angle view in mind. How does God's plan for the righteous and the wicked play out on the world stage? So with that in mind, let's go to God's word and read Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage. are all who take refuge in him. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can trust it as an inspired inerrant and sufficient document for our lives. We thank you that we hear your voice speaking to us from it, even this morning. And we ask that you would be with us in a special way as we study your word right now. Amen. This sermon is going to have three points as we dive into Psalm 2. Three points. Point number one, resistance is futile. Resistance is futile. Point number two, Christ reigns. Point number three, respond in fear. If you didn't get those, you'll hear them again. Point number one, resistance is futile. Perhaps you've heard this phrase before. If you have, you were probably reading a science-fiction novel or watching a program like Star Trek. This is a very iconic phrase. This is another cliché in the entertainment industry. You get a daring space captain who encounters some hostile alien race, and that race is more advanced, has better technology, and an undefeated record in the universe. And they come and they say, hey, resistance is futile, lay down your weapons, don't even bother fighting, Don't waste our time. Don't waste your time. And of course, the the ironic thing about this plot line is that resistance in the end is never futile, right? Because the hero, the captain, whoever it happens to be, always finds a way to triumph. He always finds a way to do the impossible and defeat the irresistible, the the powerful alien race. The good guys always find some kind of way to win in the end. Now, this common cliché it's a little bit of what's happening this morning in this text, but what we're going to see is this plot structure is getting flipped on its head. So God, who is the embodiment of all that is good, He is the irresistible one. There is no way around His plan. There's no stopping Him. His will will be done. Resisting the Lord is futile. On the other hand, we have the nations. And the nations here is a phrase that refers to the unbelieving Gentiles of the world. These are the bad guys. These are the ones who have no hope. They're the ones who shouldn't bother resisting. They should lay down their arms and surrender. But they do. They resist God. That's why the psalm opens by asking this question. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Now the verb rage here points to a constant fighting and a struggle against something. Or in this case, against someone. Look here at verse 2. This raging, this plotting, this scheming is against the Lord and his anointed. It's not just the nations either. It's their rulers who are plotting and scheming against the Lord and his anointed. But why? Well, the psalmist tells us in verse 3, he gets to the heart of, of what this resistance is about. This resistance against the Lord is a desire to be free of God's rule. Look here at verse three. This is the leaders of these nations saying to themselves, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. You see, the unbelieving nations of the world view God's rule over them as a form of oppression, They're viewing God's rule as bondage that's constraining them, and they want to break free of that. Now this sinful desire to be free from God's rule, this goes all the way back to the garden. This is nothing new. In the beginning when God created Adam and Eve and he put them into the garden, he gave them rules to follow. He gave them good rules, rules that were designed to bless them if they stayed within the constraints, with the confines of those rules. These rules were designed to protect Adam and Eve from sin. And so he said, of the tree of life, you can eat. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you can't eat. And so Satan, when he spoke to Eve, he convinced her to disobey God by saying to her that God and his rule was oppressing her. It was keeping her back. God was robbing her of the glory of being like God. And if she wanted to experience that, she had to disobey him and throw off the chains of his rule. Genesis chapter 3, verse 5, we hear Satan saying, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So Eve decided to reject God's rule and be a law unto herself, to decide for herself what was good and evil. And Adam followed suit. And that is what every wicked ruler and evil nation has done since then. In fact, that's what every one of us has done since then in our own lives. We have looked at God's law, and we have viewed chains holding us down. And determined that we will break free of them. And as a result, we become idolaters. You see, when we reject God's rule over us, we don't become free agents. We don't become godless. We find something to rule over us in His place. And we become slaves to whatever that idolatry happens to be. Another way to say this is that we are creatures designed for worship. And we will worship something. We have worshipped gods made of stone, made of wood, made of gold. We have worshipped gods made of other men and other women and ideologies, even political parties. But we will worship something. And that is why we live in a world of idolaters. Now this is important because one of the most pervasive ideas in the West today, particularly in our country, is that you should never bring your religious beliefs into the public square. We hear this all the time. Oh, you believe in God. You believe He is Lord. Well, that's fine. Just keep that in your own home. He's your God. That's fine. But don't bring your beliefs about that God into the public square. Particularly, don't tell me I have to recognize Him as God. Don't legislate the laws in this country with him in mind or his rule or his law in mind, that's against the rules. Now, of course, the people who think this way always bring their idols into the public square. They have no problem taking the values of their idols and carrying them with them everywhere they go, legislating, campaigning, and holding us all accountable to the standards of those idols they've created for themselves. You see, the wicked rulers in this psalm, they think they've broken free of God's rule. They think they've shattered those chains of God's law and set themselves free. But in reality, all they've done and all any idolater in this world has done is handcuffed himself to a false god. This is a good place for us to pause. Just pause here and consider the state of our own hearts. And here's why. It's really easy to be reading this psalm, following along, and and look at this and think, "Who? look at these fools. Who do these nations think they are? Boy, are they going to get it? But ask yourself this question. Do God's commands seem like chains to me? You see, when the world hears God giving commands, things like, have no other gods before me, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, the world hears this and they feel stifled. They feel suffocated. They feel like they're being starved. And the reason for that is simple. It's because God's law is telling them that they have to abstain from and avoid the thing that they love most in this life, sin. But God's people are different. Listen to the psalmist, glory in the law of God, in Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Do you love God's law like that? Maybe you don't have quite that much zeal, but maybe you love God's law enough that you wished you loved God's law like that. Brothers and sisters, if that's you, if you feel that longing to love God's law like this, like the psalmist does, that is the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. Because apart from Him changing our affections to make us lovers of God's rule, we would be just like the nations in this psalm. We would be continuing in our state of raging and plotting and scheming to overthrow His rule over our lives. Maybe for you, Maybe when you hear that, God's law does sound like chains to you. Maybe it does sound like God is holding you back from what your heart really desires. Well, that does describe you understand that you're not worshiping God. You are worshiping an idol. And when the nations serve their idols and they rage and they plot and they scheme, God laughs He laughs. Look at verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Derision isn't a word that we hear much these days, but it means contemptuous mockery. See, the foolishness of the nations is deserving of God's laughter. They deserve his ridicule when we reject God's authority over us and declare ourselves autonomous, free from God's rule, this is important, absolutely nothing changes. That's what makes it so foolish. If I get in my car and I get out there on the highway right now and I say, I declare no speed limits and I start driving 90 miles an hour right down 36, right here, can I expect nothing to happen when I pass a state trooper? No, because my declaration did nothing to affect the authority of this city's laws over my vehicle's speed. And similarly, when you declare God's rule broken and you say, I will not serve you, I will make an idol for myself and serve that God instead, nothing has changed. God's binding authority of, over your life is exactly the same as it was before. The only thing that's changed is you are now disobedient. And so it's the height of foolishness. The reason it's so foolish is because God does not negotiate with rebels. His plan continues just as it was designed. His king has been installed. And as far as he's concerned, that's the end of the matter. Which brings us to point number two. Christ reigns. If you pick up any good study Bible, you will learn... this psalm was written by King David. And when we read these words, look at verse 7 here, these words, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This me here is the Lord calling David his son. The Lord is telling David that he has begotten him. This is the Lord talking to his anointed one, King David, the king of Israel. And David's words are pointing back to a sort of promises that the Lord made to David. And we see these promises recorded in 2 Samuel, where the Lord entered into a covenant relationship with David. He says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. This is an amazing promise. God Referring to an earthly, sinful human being as a son and raising him up as a king over his people. And as if that wasn't a magnificent enough promise, he goes on and he says, Your household and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, see, David knew his life would come to an end. He knew someday he would die. And yet God's promise of this Davidic throne was an eternal throne. So even here, we see the promises in the Old Testament pointing forward to a greater reality, a greater son, a greater king. Now the original readers of this text would have only understood this dimly. But the Holy Spirit has revealed this fully to us through the New Testament. The promises made to David were seeded in David's lineage, and they came to be fulfilled in Christ. When Campbell read the first chapter of Hebrews earlier, we heard these words applied to Christ. In Hebrews chapter 5, we see the same thing. The author of Hebrews says, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. You see, here the author of Hebrews, through the power of the Holy Spirit, was able to read those words and recognize this was more than the Father speaking to King David. This was the Father speaking through those same words to Christ. Now I want you to hear me clearly. This psalm was about David. This psalm was about King David, but it also had a fuller meaning that has now been revealed to us. And that meaning was there all along. God's anointed, his Messiah, the Christ, has come. He is our high priest. He is our high king. And now he sits at the Father's right hand and he is reigning from heaven. Of course, to the idolatrous nations and rulers of this world, that sounds like fingernails on a chalkboard. This is where once again we would hear that refrain. That's fine for you. Jesus may be your high king, but he's not mine. He's not ours. Well, that's not exactly true. The same father who installed Christ as king told him this in verse eight. Ask of me, And I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So did Jesus forget to ask? I think the answer is obviously no. Scripture tells us that Jesus' coronation as king is complete. That means he has dominion and authority over every inch of this earth and he lays claim to all of creation including your soul. And that's whether you want him to or not. Now, as Christians, this reign of God's anointed, the reign of Christ, should have some very significant impacts on the way we view the world around us. There's three subpoints to this point. These three subpoints are ways that this truth, the reign of Christ, should affect the way we think about the world. Number one, Christ's reign should affect our evangelism. When Christ commands the world to repent and believe the gospel, that is a command. And that command comes from the highest place of authority in all of creation. Repent and believe the gospel. So when we share the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ with lost people in this world, how do we do that? Should we give people the impression that they need to try Jesus out for a few weeks and see if he works with their lifestyle, see how he makes them feel? And then maybe, if it's, if it's jiving, then maybe they could keep him for the long term. What if we speak of Jesus as sort of meekly asking for us to make space for him in our busy lives? Sort of adding Jesus onto our busy lives It's a thing we do on Sundays and sometimes Wednesdays. Should we lure people into our church with promises of programs and entertainment and caffeine and kind of hope that they learn to appreciate Jesus through osmosis? I think, again, the answer is obviously no. We need to be focused in our evangelism, not on causing people to have sort of a vague affinity for Jesus, but on getting people to bow their knee to Christ as Lord. And that will affect the way we talk about him and share the good news. As our brother Will pointed out when I talked about this with him earlier in the week, that should also affect the way we react when people respond very negatively to the gospel. We shouldn't be surprised when people reject this truth with a hostility and an emotion that looks like raging, that looks like trying to throw off the chains of God's rule. And that's because people aren't neutral. If you don't recognize Christ as reigning, as Christ as your king and your God and your high priest, then you're just like the nations. You are against him. Now, another way that this affects our view of the world around us is that Christ's reign will have tremendous implications in the way we view politics. Until Christ returns, we can expect to see continual reign plotting and raging and scheming against our Lord. Our nation is a battleground between gods. And the people of this country in particular seem to be trying to buck God's law off of them like a bull trying to throw a rider. Understand that this is not new. This was true when Psalm 2 was written and this is true today and it will be true tomorrow. And so when we see Bills proposed that are attempting to shut down the child sacrifice we see in abortion clinics in this country, and those bills don't ever get anywhere. When we see Christians lose their livelihoods because they won't bow the knee to LGBTQ ideology. When we see the kind of evil that we see in our culture celebrated, not just tolerated, but celebrated to the point where... Preaching, faithful preaching and teaching is considered hate speech. We shouldn't be surprised. We also shouldn't lose hope. That's because even when it looks like our nation's idols are winning and pushing the true God out of power, this text this morning tells us that's not possible. This text tells us that God's decree is unbreakable. God's plan is is moving forward regardless because God's anointed is already reigning. So politics for us as Christians is different. We don't don't put our hope in earthly rulers. We don't put our hope in earthly bills or in Supreme Court justices. We take comfort in knowing that despite the raging of idols in our country, despite everything we see around us, God's plan will continue to move forward. Which brings us to the third point of application here. This relationship between the irresistible God and the raging of the nations is why Christians experience persecution. This relationship between the irresistible God and the raging of the nations is why Christians experience persecution. You see, the idolaters of this world, they know they can't do anything to stop God. They know that they are ultimately powerless to affect him. And it's this knowledge of their impotence that leads them to rage all the more against him. And when they can't reach him, they target his representatives on earth. Consider the parable of the wicked tenants that Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 21. He talks about a landowner who gives this vineyard, his vineyard, to a set of tenants. And these He sends servants to collect the fruit and the the money that they owe him. And every time he sends a representative, the tenants beat the representative and kill him. Finally, he sends his son, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Brothers and sisters, this is the nature of all persecution. It is an attempt to harm God by proxy. Now this might not be very obvious, so follow along carefully with me here. Persecution against Christians represents sinful man's total inability to harm God or sabotage his plans. Persecution represents sinful man's total inability to harm God or sabotage his plans. And as strange as it might sound to the world, we can take comfort in that. You see, when nations like China round up Christians and throw them in jail and torture them and abuse them and kill them, the more violent and bloody this oppressive oppressive persecution is, the more it's displaying their utter futility to do anything to harm the king who is reigning right now. And they can do nothing to stop. When they kill Christians, what does God do? We've seen the text this morning. He laughs. He makes those who are martyred trophies of His glory. And ultimately, He raises them from the dead. He even uses their spilled blood as the means by which He continues to spread the gospel and His glory throughout the earth. He's using the raging disobedient nations as the means by which He has brought more glory. Resistance is futile. So, what is God's plan moving forward? What awaits these rebellious nations? What we see from the text: Christ's coronation is complete, but is the consummation of His kingdom has not yet come? This is often what we talk about when we talk about the already and the not yet, kind of where we are in terms of the biblical storyline. Christ reigns, but Christ has not yet returned to consummate his kingdom. Christ right now is ruling from heaven, but at the time of his return, until, I should say, the time of his return, we will continue to see the wheat and the tares grow up together in the same land. But when he does return, he will bring judgment. In verse 6, we see that the Lord's king has been installed. And yet in verse 9, we see future tense here. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. At the hands of the Son, the same Son, the same anointed that they raged and plotted against, the wicked nations will receive destruction. The unbelievers of the world will be crushed. In Psalm 1, we saw that there were these two eternal destinations. The wicked were blown away like the chaff and the wind of God's judgment, while the righteous, the righteous man was known by God. He was blessed by God and he prospered because of God. We see that same eternal reality playing out here on the global scale now. The wicked nations are dashed to pieces. That imagery is important. That imagery of a potter's vessel here's why a potter's vessel is a created thing it's a thing the potter shaped and made with his own hands through his own power so when christ dashes his vessels to pieces there's no question about his right to do that he is the potter they are his vessels his judgment will be just The good king will bring justice against the wicked nations of the world. So, what can they do? What hope is there for those who are raging and plotting and scheming, even now, even in this very city? Well, that brings us to point three respond in fear. Look at verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. If you've ever read through any of the psalms, you are probably familiar with this this phrase, fear of the Lord. You might have some understanding of how important a virtue this is to God's people in the Old Testament in particular, and in the Psalms in particular, where we see it frequently. Psalm 19, which I read earlier, says this, The fear of the Lord is clean. We might understand that as pure. Psalm 34 says, Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Psalm 86, which we read this morning, calling us to worship, says Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Psalm 111 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So what does this mean, to fear the Lord? Well, many who teach on this phrase unfortunately try to downplay the meaning of this word fear. They'll say that fear in this context means deep reverence or respect or honor for God. Now that's true. They're they're correct. It does mean that, but it means more than that. Now thankfully, there are men who are far wiser than I am, who have spent longer than I've been alive wrestling with this theological question. What does fear of the Lord mean? And it turns out that if you go to seminary and you learn to read Hebrew and you find the original Hebrew word that's translated fear, and you do like the semantic range of meaning, and you look at all the other uses of that word, and you study it, and you meditate on it, you will come to an astounding conclusion. The fear of the Lord means being afraid of the Lord. That's it. But the world doesn't like this. People who claim to be Christian teachers don't like this. They tell us God isn't someone to be feared. God is good. Brothers and sisters, they're right. God is good. But God is terrifying because He is good. And we are not. You see, the wicked rulers of this psalm should fear God. Because they've committed cosmic treason against their creator. And God's goodness, His justice, which is an aspect of His goodness, demands that they be crushed for that. But they don't fear Him. Recall that this psalm began with a question. Why do the nations rage? Well, this is the answer. Because they don't fear God. They don't fear His anointed. Now the way to tell the difference between those who do fear the Lord and who don't fear the Lord is right here in the text. Those who fear the Lord kiss his son. The original hearers of this psalm would have been familiar with this kind of reference. This is very archaic to us, but to kiss a king was a symbol of submitting to him, of pledging your allegiance to him. To the rulers of the earth, this kiss is a reversal of their behavior in the first verses. Their raging and plotting and scheming has gone away. And they've acknowledged his ultimate authority, Christ's ultimate authority over them. And this kiss is submitting to him both in love and in a right fear of his wrath, which is inseparable from his goodness, his holiness, and his justice. And, summary, brothers and sisters, this, this psalm, when you break it down, it's just, it's nothing short of the gospel itself. Rebels against God, turn to Christ, submit to him, and be spared from the wrath to come. And this is important. When we turn to Christ, our refuge from his wrath, it's not found in trying to be a good person. It's not found in keeping rules. It's not found in our idols of wood or stone or gold or our political parties or our Supreme Court justices. It is found in Him. Look at the last verse. In Him. Our refuge is in Christ. If we are in Him, we are blessed. This is another good point to stop and assess our own hearts here this morning. The scope of Psalm 2 has been expanded way out. We're in the macro view. The world stage, this drama, this biblical storyline is unfolding here. As far as I know, nobody in this room is a king over any nations. So how does this apply to us? Well, the command to turn from our rebellion and our idolatry and to submit to God's anointed, to kiss the sun, to fear God, This is a command that we should all take heed. It applies to us just as much as it applies to unbelieving nations and evil rulers. So ask yourself if you believe yourself to be a Christian, sitting here this morning, do you fear God? Do you fear God? If you're not sure, I encourage you to spend some time meditating on this idea. The fear of the Lord. We so often think of fear as a purely negative emotion. Countless sermon series and and programs at churches are all about escaping fear. Well, there's an aspect to fear, especially when we talk about fear of the Lord, that we shouldn't be trying to run from, we should be trying to run to. This fear, this fear of the Lord is rich, it's complex. To describe it, I I almost feel like I should be one of those uh, judges on those competitive cooking shows where they taste people's food and they talk about the flavors. The fear of the Lord has a rich and powerful flavor of terror, but mixed in are notes of awe and wonder and the finish is of pure joy. You see, this is what happens when we try and wrap our minds around the extremes of God's holiness and our wickedness and his immeasurable love and mercy that he shows us through saving us. When we try and put that all into our minds, this fear is the result. He has the power to utterly destroy you. It's a magnificent power, but instead, in his love, he has chosen to save you. The fear doesn't go away. It combines with the love and the mercy to create something new and something really and truly overwhelming. So, meditate on that. But if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, there's a funny thing about the fear of the Lord that you need to know. We will all experience it. You will experience it one way or another. You will fear the Lord. You will either fear him now or you will fear him when he comes in judgment. And that fear will be very different. It will have the same bold flavor of terror but it will be mixed with despair and hopelessness and dread. So if you don't fear the Lord, turn to his son, submit to his son and take refuge in him. You will find that he is a good and faithful king and you will find that he can satisfy you in a way that the false idols of this world never will. If you don't know what that means, if you don't know the gospel, I encourage you, ask one of the members of this church here before you leave this morning. Find out what it means to submit to Christ. Remember, no matter who you are, you are part of this unfolding story. You are part of this narrative on the world stage where God is unfolding and revealing His Son as King and High Priest and ruler over creation. And who you choose to serve in this life will have eternal consequences. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. And above all, we thank You for Your Son. We thank You that we can trust in him as a good and holy and righteous king. We thank you that we can trust in him as our high priest and we ask that each day you would help us to grow in submission and love to him. Amen. Please stand. Together.